You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the Talking Tennis WTA show. Um, I'm your usual host, Nick Carter, and I'm here with our illustrious guest, um, a multiple major doubles champion and uh, broadcaster, tennis coach. You've literally done a bit of everything, Rene Stubbs. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. It's uh uh, first time, obviously, we've spoken in person, but uh, I think we're going to have some good uh, tennis chat. Um, obviously, uh, you're obviously still very much passionate about the game, um, as am I, um, as a fan. Um, so uh, did you get to, a chance to watch much of uh, Stuttgart? Yeah, I watched quite a bit of it. I was um, uh, happily on vacation in uh, Mexico, but uh, it just came on at a really good time for me to sit and watch. Uh, not not every match, obviously, but most matches I got a chance to sit and watch. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favourite tournaments. It was one of my favourite tournaments to play, and they just do a fabulous job there. Yeah, it, and you know, as a as a fan, it's a fabulous tournament to watch. I mean, maybe more on the television screen, but um, they do seem to like put on a show there and. Um, m- for what you can say about WTA 500 draws, the fact it was stacked meant there was a match very much worth watching um, every single day. Um, if I think last week I was in the office and I was super excited to get back on the Tuesday night to go and watch Raducanu versus Ostapenko. Well, that's what happens when you offer uh, the top 10 of Porsche to come to the tournament. You get a lot of, pay- <laughs> you get a lot of great players there. Was that a massive incentive for you when you were playing? Or maybe they didn't offer it for the doubles, did they? Well, sa- sadly, uh, yeah, I won that tournament a bunch of times in doubles. But uh, sadly, we didn't get a Porsche. Uh, we didn't even get a replica. So, uh, But for the singles players, if you're top 10, just to go to the tournament, you actually get given a Porsche. So it's a pretty good incentive to head to uh, Stuttgart. I feel like there was a tournament that did have a big prize for doubles at some point, surely, somewhere. Uh, one that uh, I won sixty, uh, and I don't think, remember one other. I'm just I'm not okay. going to make about the, the money that we made, but uh, the money now that they're making is a tremendous amount more. But I'm not going to complain about that, considering Billie Jean won like twenty five hundred dollars to win singles at Wimbledon. So you know, it's all it's yeah. all fair in love and war, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's all very much uh, generational. Okay, so um, 
obviously we enjoyed this tournament a lot. Um, now, uh, I assume one of the matches you watched was that final between Iga Shvantec and Arena Sabalenka. Yes. Uh, obviously, um, lots of stats about it. It's the first um, 1v2 um, WTA rankings clash um, outside of a year-end championship since Australian Open 2018 final. If you include the year-end championships, it's the 2019 clash between Ash Barty and Karolina Pleshkova was the last time we had uh, number one versus number two in the WTA rankings facing off against each other. Um, I was really excited for that final. And although it was straight sets, I thought it delivered a very qu- high-quality match from both players. They both really went for it. It was nice to see um, Sviantec being able to sort of counteract um, whatever Sabalenka was throwing at her. Sabalenka still able to hit through her quite a lot. Um, what were your thoughts on that final? Yeah, I think this was for me a really big, big, big stressful moment for Iga Sviantec, to be quite honest. I think that, um, you know, indoors really favours um, someone like a Sabalenka who possesses a massive big flat serve. Um, and her game <clears throat> really doesn't have a lot of margin. I mean, she has a little bit of margin on the the back. Oh, she's putting more spin on the backhand and forehand these days, um, you know, and sort of understanding that she needs to get into some points. But really, her, her game is one, two shot tennis. She wants to get first strike and go after it. So indoors really favours players like that. When you think about someone like Alicia Parks, the young American who won a tournament uh, at the beginning of this year and did really well at the end of last year and every tournament that she's won is indoors because she plays very risky tennis, big serving, big returning, um, really goes for it. And that's sort of Sabalenka. So I thought this was a very, um, it was a test for Iga Shiontek in in a lot of ways because she's, look, heads and shoulders above everybody on clay. Her movement on clay is, you know, better than anybody's. She can defend better than anyone on clay, her sliding ability, all of those sorts of things. So for me, this was a huge test for her because Sabalenka indoors was always going to push someone like Iga, but, you know, obviously last year they, similar result, but um, for me with the confidence that Sabalenka has this year, especially with the serving, I mean, she even said it before the match, look, I wasn't serving well last year. This is a different situation now for me. Um, The difference was really the serving ability of Iga Sviantek under pressure and frankly, um, just her ability to defend um, on this quite slippery indoor surface of, of clay. I know it's clay, but it is a little bit more slippery than, say, you know, Rome, Madrid, and maybe not uh, Madrid because Madrid has got that little bit of um, uh, altitude, but the French Open really favours someone as beautiful a mover as um, Shiontek, whereas the indoor surface is quite slippery. So I thought this was a big, big mental and confidence booster for Iga Shiontek. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, obviously, she's under a lot of she's under a lot of pressure. She hasn't started this year as well as she started last year. Although, let's face it, last year was a very high bar to try and match. Well, no one had done that in twenty years, so I'm not going to hold that one on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but obviously, she was coming to this with like a five hundred title. She hadn't won um, either of Indian Wells or Miami. Um, and so, obviously, and Sabalenka seems to be the player who's kind of rushing up to challenge her now. She had a rocket start to the year with winning Australia, final Indian Wells. Uh, so, uh, so it did feel like if Sabalenka could win that match, it was going to be a massive uh, shift um, in her favour and sort of that their kind of battle for the, at the t- for the top of the game. Um, but as you said, Eager just that little bit better on clay, and maybe it was. Um, as much pressure on Sabalenka to kind of prove that she could be up there as much it was for Iga, maybe. Yeah, I think in this circumstance, I think um, 
I think Sabalenka probably would have felt uh, not lucky, but um, felt pretty good about making the finals here. She was in some tough matches, particularly the one against Badoza, where really she was kind of out, out of it in a, a set and down very heavily in the second set. So I think she would have been pretty pleased with getting through to the final. Um, sad what happened to Ange Jabeur. I would have loved to have seen the Ange Jabeur-Igashiontek match on this surface, um, just because I think Ange's ability to hit drop shots and uh, really change the pace of the ball and also her defensive ability around the court. It would have been interesting for me to watch her and uh, Iga go at it. But um, I think for Sabalenka, as I said, I think she'd be super happy. Look, she's must feel frustrated and not winning this tournament. She's been in the finals now, I believe, three times in a row. So, um, But as I said, this is more a litmus test for me for Iga Sriantek. If she, I felt if she could win this match, that was a big, big, huge boost for her. But for Sabalenka, I don't think she should be upset about this loss in some ways. But if she can't be Iga indoors on clay, then I don't see her pushing Iga for the rest of the outdoor season. Look, but, you know, if... if Shiontek serves better than she possibly has a chance because she didn't serve that well in this match. No, I suppose not. I mean, the other thing we've got to factor in with Sabalenka is, you know, the slower the surface gets, the more of a disadvantage she's at. Um, she still has yet to break fourth round of the French Open, like third round the last three years, but um, never got past that point. So it'd be, I, I would expect her to have a good chance of, you know, breaking that duck, but... I would agree with you on outdoor and clay that this is a this is a bad sign for potentially being a challenger to um, Sviontek. Um, I would guess that kind of leads us on to maybe another question that sort of like is kind of dominating the the WTA clay court discourse, which is who is Iga's biggest threat um, on clay, particularly at Roland Garros? I think for me, the biggest threat for her um, will be someone like a Bob, uh, Bora Krajikova. I think if Krajikova plays eager in any quarter or semi, because they won't play before that, um, I think that'll be her big, biggest test. Obviously, we know that um, Krajikova has done very well in the past against uh, Iga. Uh, she has beaten her on clay, um, particularly in, in a final as well, which is a big thing to be able to do. Because um, you know, some people might have little downs in their in their play, but Iga wants to win every single match, which is why she's such a great number one. But I think Krajikov is probably the the one that can push Iga in these moments on red clay. I don't think there's too many more outside of that. I think maybe a Badoza because she hits with such heavy spin. Um, but Iga's Iga's movement um, will hurt someone like a Badoza because she'll get just one more ball back in the court. So for me, maybe an Ange Burr type of player as well that can sort of match it um, up against someone like Iga Shiontek on the sliding ability, the variety on the court. But so I'd probably put Ons and Krajikova as the two um, players that maybe can push Iga on a clay court. I would completely agree with that. I mean, when we were first having this discussion, like first name that came to my mind was Barbara Krajikova. Partly because of the head-to-head, -head, as you mentioned, you know yeah. she's beaten Iga the last couple of times they played. Um, although I think didn't Iga win the last time they played on clay? Was it that Rome match where it was just super close in twenty twenty one? Well, I think that I think that um, she beat her uh, in uh, a smaller tournament. Was it in Prague or after after Wimbledon? I believe. Oh, that was year. Garcia. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. Garcia, yeah. So, I mean, someone like a Garcia, for example, yeah. the French Open can can really push someone like Eager as well just because of the serving ability and the kicking ability. But it's just Eager's such an incredible mover around the clay court, so much better than not some of the players, but 
most of the women, some of them really struggle to move. Um, but her sliding ability and her defensive ability is just, it's second to none. Maybe maybe, maybe Anons is, is close, uh, Maria Sakari. But for me, Grzykova is probably the best one, only because she's also won the French Open, and that really makes a big difference when you step onto a court and you know you can win a tournament. Um, and also, Grzykova does have a good head-to-head against Iga. Yeah. Um, let's face it, we know we know that she can push it. It would be a really exciting match if that happens. I mean, I think probably the dream French Open final would be Sviantek versus Krajikova. Uh, yeah. Last two, most two, two most recent champions, um, two best potentially on clay right now. Um, someone who can challenge Sviantek. But um, look, we're, we're, the reason why we're talking about these as potential rivals is because, yeah, we know Sviantek is that, superior on the surface because of her movement as you said because of um the top spin that she can produce um on every shot that just um skims off the clay um that will i think she's gonna be very hard to beat unless she has a very very bad day kind of like she had against when she lost to sakari in 21 uh yeah. so there's that um we talk talking a lot about on and she's someone i agree with you who would also be contender provided she's fit and healthy i mean we saw her pull something like first point of the match against Iga, really gutting that wasn't um, a proper contest that could have been magical. Um, I, the injury consent, I mean, obviously we don't know exactly what's injured, but is, do you think that's something that looks recoverable from or would that look fairly serious? Uh, well, you know, we're, we're, no, we don't really know. Um, obviously she's going to get some scans done to see if she's, you know, torn anything or it was just a little bit of a strain. But, gee, I mean, to see it happen so quickly, I, I'm really pleased, to be honest, that she stopped after three games. Most players would try and force it just to, I don't know, it's really, really, it's a very hard thing to default in the middle of a match as a competitor. Um, and often you you keep going and with a calf or a lower leg extremity like that, it is very important that you don't play on because, you know, hopefully, as I said, it's just a strain. But if she kept playing and torn that, I tell you, one of the worst injuries you can have is a calf strain because it uh, calf uh, tear because it just it it's a nightmare to um, get rid of, and it's something that it really scares you. It's kind of like your Achilles when you push off; you're always really worried. So we don't know. She hasn't told anyone um, of the extent of it yet because I'm sure they're probably waiting to see but um i hope that it's just a mild strain and um she chose not to keep playing because if she kept playing that could have been a major major injury for her and she's already suffered one this year so you wonder if the injury this year is also starting to you know take control of the rest of her body and that's sort of what happens your body starts to change a little bit um and protect the, the the other injury so hopefully it's nothing serious yeah agreed really hope it's uh nothing serious i mean yeah as you said we don't know much detail of it um if it is one of the worst potential strains then she'll know to look after it um i am surprised she's not pulled out of madrid yet haven't seen anything saying that she has yeah she's defending champion so i think that she really wants to make sure that she's given it every single last little bit of time to prepare for it and as i said if it's just a strain or um something that uh, you know she can work through um and also, she's learnt the lesson from what happened earlier of coming back for Indian Wells in Miami a bit too early from her injury. I think she'll be very aware of not doing that because as much as she wants to defend her title in Madrid and as much as she, you know nobody wants to play her on clay, um, 
she's also thinking big picture and the big picture is really she has the French Open around the corner and also defending finals of Wimbledon in the US Open. So her biggest points, yes, are Madrid, but they're really coming up um, at Wimbledon in the US Open. So she has to be very smart about the decision. And we as tennis players don't look sometimes into the future and we should and because it's very important for her to, to, to worry about those points. Yeah. I, I, you know what, you're, you're right. They do. <laughs> uh, it is very much important to uh, look to the future, and like those U.S. Open points are kind of the bedrock. If she drops the Madrid points, she's still going to be top ten. She's still going to get some good draws. Maybe not as good as she would be as top four, but the differences are fairly marginal, um, depending on who's in your top four, of course. That's uh, right. So hopefully it's all fine. Uh, but yeah, agreed. Maybe the wisest thing to do would be to pull out from Madrid and save herself for Roland Garros because that's a big potential points gain for her uh, yes. given that she went out first round. That's right. And that would be the conversation, I think, between her and her coach and obviously her husband and fitness trainers that, um, yes, it's important. Yes, you don't want to pull out of a tournament. You won last year. You will drop, um, you know, somewhat uh, in the rankings. But really what's more important is the French Open and, as I said, Wimbledon and the US Open because that's really where her massive amounts of points are. Yeah. And she's got, again, big you know, she's big favourite on grass right now. Um, exactly. So plenty yeah. to gain from Wimbledon with there being no points last year. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Let, let's see how she does there. Um, but just to wrap up on Stuttgart, because um, obviously this is all related to Stuttgart, uh, the one remaining semi-finalist that we haven't touched on yet um, is Anastasia Potapova. Is she yeah. one to watch these next few months? She's had some good results. I think she's one to watch anyway throughout. I mean, she's a very tenacious competitor. Um, so many players um, play similarly to her in, in some respects. Um, but she 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 has a bit of an X factor in that she's really very tenacious. And you've got to hate to lose more than you want to win sometimes. And I think she has that in her. She really likes to compete. And I like that about her. And she's not afraid to show it, you know, in her her actions and the way she plays um and she's quite um strong-willed and all that sort of stuff so i think yeah absolutely she's somebody to watch going forward no, nobody really wants to go up against her yeah and look she's just got a couple of big top 10 wins under her belt um so um and it has a clay court title um so let's see uh let's see again <laughs> would you describe yourself as tenacious Renee? our producer is asking <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I was definitely a player that hated losing more than I loved winning and everybody loves winning and I loved winning. There's no question about that, but I really hated to lose. So, you know, if I had to dive for a ball, for example, I mean, those are sort of the players you, you know, that I sort of fit into that category. Um, you know, I'd die for a ball rather than like, you know, not feel like I gave a hundred percent. So I think you've, yeah, I think to play professionally, like I did for 20 something years, you've got to really love the game and you've really got to love competing. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Um, w could you name a tennis player who you would say loves to win more than they hate to lose or um, active? Um, you know, some players just sort of get over it and they kind of get on with the next week and they don't really stress about it. And some just ruminate over losing like for days. I mean, I think Lisa Raymond, my old doubles partner, she was somebody that once we lost, it was sort of like within a half an hour, she was sort of over it. I mean, not, you're not really over it, over it, but, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend that Lisa hate, didn't hate losing because she hated losing and she won a hell of a lot. But, you know, some people just, eh, you know, they could get on with it and whatever, whereas I would ruminate over for two days why we lost. Um, so th that, I think that's a, that's just a distinction of someone's personality. It's not a, it's not a flaw. Um, 
absolutely. But I think someone like Serena, for example, hated losing so much. I think the greats really hate losing more than they like winning because winning's fantastic. But boy, do they it really hurts them and hits them when they lose. That's an interesting, really, really interesting bit of sports psychology there. Um, I always enjoy when I do an interview and I get something out of it I didn't know before. Um, and uh, these two differing mentalities of of tennis players. I think we always assume that everyone, I think, well, we know everyone hates to lose, but how they deal with it, um, that sort of variety is quite interesting to me. Yeah, and as I said, it's there's not a positive or negative. Some people, if you you know, maybe don't get so carried away and don't get all, you know, bent out of shape and crazy when they're on the court because they're able to sort of look at things a little bit more with perspective, I guess. Um, whereas, so I don't, I don't think there's a positive or negative way of actually playing, but you've just got to hate. There's moments in matches where you kind of just shut down sometimes mentally and you're not really still engaged in the match because you're like, okay, you know what, I don't care if I lose, you know, but really down deep inside, you really do hate, you don't want to lose, but you kind of have that little part of you that's like, oh, well, you know, okay, so if I lose this match, all right, I'm going to leave today, I'm going to be at the hotel in Paris tomorrow, and, you know, and they and they pretend that it doesn't matter to them mm-hmm. emotionally, and it's some players are like, oh, my God, in their brain, they're like, I have to leave tomorrow, come on, you can't lose this match. So there's that juxtaposition wow. on the court where your brain, like, either allows you to sort of take off the stress or put it on your shoulders. And I and neither way really works positive or negatively. It's how it works for you. Um, and I think that's the difference. So someone like Lisa Raymond could sort of switch off and not, pretend she didn't care, but really she did deep inside. But that allowed her to play freer. I don't know. There's a, there's a as I said, it, it, everyone, different courses for different horses. All right. That's a, and. That's a really fascinating insight. And uh, another interesting um, player mentality with a strong mentality um, is someone you just mentioned, Serena Williams, who um, you actually coached towards the end of last year. Yeah. Um, so when uh, sort of her her final stint um, on the on the tour, um, have you spoken to her recently at all? Yeah, we text um, from time to time. Uh, usually. Uh, she texts me to make fun of me about something uh, that I've done or I'm doing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not joking either. It's usually something along those lines. I always know when I get a text from Serena, uh-oh, here we go. It's just going to give me crap about something. Um, so, yeah, we, we keep in touch. We, you know, send each other text messages from time to time just to check in and see how we're both doing. And, um, you know, she's busy with her, you know, Serena Ventures and getting into producing now and productions of in, in the media world, which I think is fantastic. Because uh, we need more voices like hers um, to be involved mm. in the media side, especially in sports. Um, she's obviously uh, doing great things with her venture, and I know that she's super busy with it. Um, clearly, she's got her kid, which takes up a lot of her time as well, Olympia. Um, so yeah, she's she seems very happy and content with um, being retired. That's that's really good uh, good to hear, actually, because you know sometimes you worry about sometimes oh what's the how are they dealing with it, but. Um, Serena obviously never met her you have but even from uh, seeing how she is on court or in interviews she's very much seems very strong-willed and to have something that she's super passionate about to throw herself into um, you know for her that sounds that sounds great yeah yeah no no she's uh, I'm happy that she's enjoying her life Uh, this photo that you guys have up is a funny one because there was a very funny joke that I told her in practice in this moment. So, you know, there's little things that you had, you know, with Serena that um, I was 
I mean, proud of, and also it was an amazing couple of weeks to be a part of. Um, something I'll never forget. And you know, if I made a difference for her in her last tournament, that was really my only goal was to make her be happy. And um, you know, moments like this sort of bring some levity onto the practice court and bring some levity to her tennis. Um, and um, and having her enjoy the last two weeks of her career, really. I mean, that's the thing that I I wanted to try and impart to her about not making it bigger than it was, even though it was a massive moment. Um, and just having her enjoy and be positive about everything that was happening on the tennis court rather than negative. And that's really hard to do when you're thinking so much about the big picture, which was last tournament, I want to play well. And after seeing her play in Cincinnati, I was like, Oof, what, can I, what can I impart to her as her friend and knowing her for, gee, like, 25 plus years um what could i help her with and i thought just bringing some levity and also just my advice on a couple of things and i'm glad that um it helped her somewhat it seemed to really yeah do something i mean what she unlocked in that us open run was uh incredible i i was sitting down every time i watched one of the matches like thinking is this going to be the last one and that hope that it wasn't just rose every single time and she really delivered some brilliant performances um and probably only just fell short of a um, second week appearance. Um, has, does that, did that stint with Serena uh, make you consider coaching again? Well, um, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, it's more about not what I want, it's what other people want. And, um, right. you know, it was interesting after that um, stint with Serena, and obviously I was still working with Sam Stoza somewhat. She was playing doubles only at that point. And I wanted to finish, you know, Sam wanted me to help her finish her career in, in a positive way, as we'd done over the three years prior. Um, but, you know, and, and the the beauty of Sam was like, yeah, go help Serena. And, you know, Sam told me a funny story in the locker room that Serena came up to her. Um, and obviously they know each other very well. And, you know, they've had their pasts of playing each other many times in big matches. And Serena said to Sam, um, thanks for letting me borrow your coach for a couple of weeks, which was really <laughs> cute. But um, honestly, I didn't get any calls. And this is what it comes down to, particularly for women coaches, is that um, no agent called me after that to work with one of their players. And often it does come down to agents, clearly players. Every job that I've gotten except the one with uh, Jeannie Bouchard um, was uh, players calling me and asking me if I'm available, whether it be Sam or um, Carolina Pliskova. Um, Serena and I have that relationship. And Jeannie, it was more along the lines with Steffi and Andre, their connection with her out in Vegas at the time, that um, they suggested me as a, as a coach for her in the interim while Sam wasn't traveling. So um, to, to, to answer your question, I didn't get an offer. So right. <laughs> uh, that's really what it comes down to is people saying, oh, could you help me make, make a difference in my career? And um, unfortunately, no one, uh, no one called me. And now I have a permanent job on television at Amazon Prime Sports. And so I can't coach now because I'm, I'm pretty busy. Yeah, well, so well, I, I thought this might be your, your pitch. Tennis World, Reddy Stubbs is available to coach, but clearly you're throwing yourself into your broadcasting uh, career now. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the negotiation tools really with Amazon. So I said, if you're going to, if you're going to sign me to a contract, I, I need to understand that's taking me away from coaching and from me not putting myself out there because I really love to do what I what I was doing. And I love coaching. I love imparting some wisdom and helping. I just like to help. I like to help players be better. And every single player that I've worked with has actually risen up the rankings quite a bit. Um, 
So, um, you know, we'll see where the future lies. Um, right now, currently, I'm, as you're showing, the power hours where I'm at every weekday. So um, we'll see what happens. And I want to correct you because last year, I know in Ostrava, Krajikova actually beat Iga Shiontek in three sets. I'm like racking my brain over that. I was like, oh, I know that she beat her on clay after the French Open win last year. So in 2022, it was in Ostrava where uh, Krajikova beat um, uh, Shiontek. So that's a good sign for Krajikova that she's actually beaten her a couple of times in finals. And one of them was on clay. Yeah. you. Um, I think Ostrava's on hard. Was it? Yeah. Uh, you, but that was a fantastic match. Uh, it's, well, there you go. I love uh, that we're correcting each other, but it, it, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're right. But but that, as we said, I think that would be for me the most intriguing final because I think I think there would be panic um, for Iga knowing that they head to head and on clay. I think it would be a great match. Anyway, I, back I'd to want that match. I'd want that match to I'd happen. I'd want that match too. Yeah. I, and do you know what? We could see them clash um, in Madrid. Because um, could, yeah. Kajikova's is a potential quarterfinal opponent yes, for yeah. Iga. It's quarterfinal last 16. Um, I, I, I like it. The matchup that I like is whoever wins Rome. I think whoever wins Rome or whoever plays the best in Rome, because Madrid is it's a bit of altitude. It's not really symbolic of look at look at Nadal's results in Madrid comparison to everywhere else. So I think the altitude really helps the big servers. Um, and having said that, I mean, Halep has won Madrid, but... Um, I think the 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 big server, big one too. I remember when I played there, even as a servant volley, it really suited me a lot more than say playing at, at the French or or in Rome. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I do. You, I actually agree with you though, because um, Rome is uh, far more relevant, and you can see um, even performances there are a good indicator for Roland Garros. The pace is similar. So and the temperature, you know, unless it's uh, t temperature, usually is about the same. So uh, yeah, so Rome's always a good indicator for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I would agree with you. Agree with you there. Um, to be honest. Um, so, going back to Madrid, um, so how do you think that's gonna gonna pan out? Um, obviously, it's clay. Iga Fiontek is the favourite, but. She hasn't won in Madrid. She didn't play last year. She lost to Ash Barty the year before mm -hmm. um, when she's really come into her own. Um, I could imagine Madrid for her being similar to Nadal's relationship with Madrid where, yes, he's very good on clay and he'll win it, but he's not going to be as strong there. He wasn't as strong there in comparison to other clay courts. And I could see that being a similar situation for Iga plus a potentially tough draw um, against either Krajikov or Rabakina in the quarterfinals. Yeah, um, that could be an upset point. So um, for me, Eager's the slight favourite, but not dead cert. I don't know if that would be your thoughts as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, as I said, also players are very comfortable going back to the places that they've done well before. And, and just the fact that Eager, as you said, hasn't even uh, you know reached the final there. I think we'll, we'll see. Um, I think that I think that she'll feel she'll understand herself a little more when you think about how she hates grass, but she's starting to maybe feel like, oh, maybe I can get to a quarterfinal or semi at Wimbledon. And then obviously hard court, we saw her struggle so much at the US Open, just bitching and moaning about the balls and the court speed, <laughs> da, 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 da. And then she ended up winning the tournament. So I think maybe what she's doing slightly better um, is understanding her weaknesses don't define her as much anymore. And so I think maybe going into Madrid, she's probably 
I don't know. Well, we'll see after the, the 10 days is over. How can she problem solve in those moments? Is the ball's flying on her a little bit? How does she bring it into the court a little bit more? And as I said, with that little bit of altitude, that's sort of what happens with the ball just flies off your racket. And if Iga's having a bit of a bad day, that's what happens. It just doesn't go in sometimes. And she cracks the ball every single time. Um, so I think it's starting to figure out a way to problem solve. And I actually think winning that match against Sabalenka in straight sets may help her realize that she can problem solve. Not everything's going to come easy for her on clay and she has to work her way into a tournament. So it'll be another litmus test for her. Um, but as I said, if she doesn't win it, she's not going to be like, oh, well, I'm not going to win the French now because it, she's never done well there anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's uh, really, really um, spot on analysis there, uh, to be honest. I think, uh, yeah, we'll see how how it reacts. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm literally going to end up repeating everything you've just said. So uh, there's... Uh, no point in uh, in me doing that. Um, you, um, you are very much the expert um, in this situation. Um, I would imagine Sabalenka's feeling pretty confident going into Madrid. Obviously, she played pretty well yeah. in Stuttgart. Um, she's won Madrid before. Um, fa- that famous win against, I would, I would call it a famous win. Like No one was expecting her to beat Barty in that final a couple of years ago. Um, so she must be feeling good about her, her chances here. Yeah, I think Sabalenka's probably the player to watch. Um, although, as I said, you know, someone like Krajikova, she's sort of like a little bit of a box of chocolates these days, how she can sort of weave away into a tournament. When she's on, she's so good. It's ridiculous. Like, she just doesn't miss. She gets into those moments, which is why when she plays well, she really does play well. Um, so, but Sabalenka, as I said, the big serving really helps in Madrid um, because of the altitude, if you can hit your serve, which is why Nadal really didn't capitalise so many as much. In, in Madrid because he would get served off the court. Someone like a Rafael, uh, Roger did better in Madrid, you know. Um, so I think the variety, hopefully Ons is feeling up to the task um, because I think her game is actually perfect for those um, types of, um, you know, the altitude and everything. But I don't know, Sabalenka depends on the serve and if it's going in, then of course she's one of the best players in the world. There's no question about that. I mean, she's won as many matches as anybody this year. Um, that's an interesting question from uh, Sean in the chat. Um, if someone's will be the Madrid finest, should should she skip skip Rome? Uh depends on the player. Really depends on the player. Some players benefit much better from momentum um, and just getting match win after match win to boost the confidence. Um, so I think it really depends on who the player is. Any injury concerns? Um, I don't know if that's your thoughts, Renee. Well, you know, the thing is, the more you play on the clay, the better you get on it, the more comfortable you feel and the fitter you get as well. Let's not forget about the fitness level. The more matches you win, it actually helps you in matches. You can get to a five all on the third, for example, and if you've done that a few times already in the in the follow, in the previous weeks, you just your your lung capacity, your legs are stronger. As long as, as you said, you're not injured, um, then it's it's much better for you. Also, there's a week off before the French Open. So these players can really load big time and then have that nice tapered week off of just practice before the French Open. And then it's one match every two days. So I think as long as you don't overdo it and you don't, for example, someone like Ash Barty a couple of years ago who, you know, pulled out with the leg injury and then had those weeks before the French Open, uh, before Wimbledon, and then ended up winning Wimbledon. So I think it, I think it depends on, and I think Ash played too much. I think that was her issue actually going into the French Open that she played too much prior to that. So you just have to be aware of how your body is, 
how you're playing and if you feel like you can keep playing, um, then, then, then we'll see what happens. But someone like Eager knows how to handle this clay court season better than anybody. Yeah. And, you know, provided you know you, a player knows their body um, and uh, knows their state, actually it would be better to place at, at least one match in Rome. As we said earlier, much more close conditions to Roland Garros. You, that's yeah. going to set you on a very set you up very well for adjusting to those courts. Yeah, I I think most players would admit playing matches is a lot more fun than practicing for a week. Anyway, uh, it's more stressful, obviously, uh, for especially for the top players like Iga and Sabalenka, who are expected to win every single match that they played right now, and Rubakina even. So I think playing matches is more stressful, but it's actually kind of Believe it or not, it's it's a it's it's sort of more fun than practicing because practicing is just so boring. You know, you do so do so much of it, and you know, your first thought when you lose early in a tournament is, oh my god, I got ten days of practice before I play again. So I think for most players, they'd rather play and then take that week off before the French Open and just have a nice relaxing practice week going into the French. Yeah, unless you're Barbara Kujikova who wins the tournament the week before the French Open, <laughs> the one when she did it. Um, but yeah, she's but when exception you rather than the rule. Like but she wasn't playing, she wasn't winning tournament upon ta yeah. tournament upon tournament. So for her, it actually helped her believe that she could win tournament. So that is actually a good thing for her. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, I would say, yeah, very much odd example there of someone who didn't seem to have form, but then found it by doing that week before. Yeah, um, no, so clay, clay and grass are very different. You know, they're, they're very similar in the fact that the more matches you have on them, the actual better you play. I think about Sam Stoza, for example, who always did, uh, well, she won Strasbourg a couple of times and went to the French and was feeling so good about her clay court tennis. And it's it's very much you work on different serves. It's a very different way of playing on clay than any other court. And the more patience you can figure out and understand about playing on clay, the better you will do later on. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, well, to wrap up on Madrid, I'm going to ask one more question. Any early round clashes you're looking forward to? Because for me, the WTA... One of the things I most enjoy about it is you get good matches, like really, really strong lineups throughout the entire draw. So any early round clashes you're looking forward to? Um, you know, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'll pull up the draw so I can have a look at it. <laughs> good um, plan. Because I haven't, I, haven't really, I haven't looked at the draw. But, um, you know, look, the bottom line is with the women's, the way that the women's is right now, it's unbelievable how strong every single tournament is i mean the the they load up. i mean when you think about even like someone like sloan stevens who can't win matches at the moment it's just unbelievable to me because she's such a good player but you know when will when will those players start breaking through again or will they just decide that you know they don't want to play anymore um and so you know i i'm going to i'm going to pull up the draw so i can have a look at it to be honest um, that's fine that's fine but also qualifying, like we should be showing qualifying on Tennis Channel instead of repeats. Yes. Of, um, I don't know why we don't show that on Tennis Channel rather than just having, um, you know, repeats of matches that were this week and last week. That sort of drives me crazy. But um, but that's a whole different story. Um, I'm I'm looking at it now. I think, you know, someone like Contivate, for example, has just had such a struggle over the last, you know, seven months. You know, her against Mukhova. Mukhova is that type of player to me that also is just like, when is she going to break through into the top 10? She's such a good player. Talk about injuries that have really hurt her. Someone like Sophia Kennan, um, you know, when can she, I think she's going to be back inside of the top 
certainly top 20, but I think she can be back inside the top 10 maybe by this time next year. She's sort of starting to get a little bit more of a groove on and Michael Joyce is now on the bag with her helping her and he's such a terrific coach and I think he's going to be good for her tennis. Um, Bianca Andreescu, you know, how's she going to be back um, after the injury to her, uh, to her ankle? You know, it seems like she's ready to go and play. Um, is she the type of player that's going to break through on one of these Grand Slams again? I don't know. But, um, you know, looking at the draw, obviously all the seeds have a, have a, have a buy. So the first round, you never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at, you know, I'm just panning through it myself right now. Yeah, same. There's, same. you know, there's not, there's actually, to be honest with you, not really that many in the first, first round that are, um, other than Svitolina and Sasnovich, like what's going to happen there? Obviously we know that Svitolina is coming back and she came back pretty well, um, I have to say, surprisingly, playing some good matches in her first couple of weeks back. Um, and really, that's that's the one match that I'm looking forward to um, out of that first round, and then we'll see what happens once they get through. Pavlich and Kova, can she find some form again after reaching the French Open a couple of years ago and having knee problems? Um, yeah, I mean, Barbara uh, Str uh, Stritzova is back. So we'll see what, what happens there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some fun first rounds, but overall sort of, mm, that's what I don't really love the buys. There's just a lot of, I don't know, no matches in the first round to be quite honest. They're really interesting to me other than the Contivate and Mukova match is probably the, probably the most interesting one of the first rounds. Yeah. Agreed. I think, yeah. Contivate Mukova, that was the one that stood out to me is like obvious. Um, and there's like potential second rounds. Like obviously I think a lot of people in the UK are going to hype up a Sviantec Raducanu match, um, if that happens in round two. I would say player to watch in this event might be Leila Fernandez. She's very comfortable on clay. Um, that yeah. match with Haddad Maya could be quite fun in round two. Yeah, we'll see what happens there with the two lefties ripping it at each other. But, uh, you know, I think the biggest issue with Leila Fernandez really is the fact that she just, her serve lets her down at times. You know, second serve is really attackable. And, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. You know, she's fallen off. I, I, I there's a lot. There's a lot I could say, sort of, about her tennis. Um, I think that her serve is something that has let her down, and also she just her margin for error is quite small. She likes to half hop a lot of the balls, but you know, playing at altitude will help her somewhat. Yeah. Oh, um, our usual contributor, uh, Joseph Garalatis, wants to know your opinion on Lyudmila Samsonova. Oh, she's gone. Oh, well, never mind. Well, I can tell you my opinion on Lidmina Samsonova. Oh, John can tell you his opinion on Lidmina Samsonova. Um, but to be fair, we did only have Renee for 40 minutes. Um, I I didn't, ex we, I don't think we expected her to drop um, quite so suddenly. We're going to put that down to technical issues. Um, but yeah, um, Samsonova should do well in Madrid. Um, she's got a big game for it. This, um, Clay's not going to resist it. She's going to do probably similarly to how she did in Stuttgart last year. But Samsonov is also a very difficult player to predict, as are one, two, quite three, a lot of one, other two, big hitters on the WTA tour. Can you hear me, by the way? Yeah, I can hear oh, you, John. Man. Okay, great, you can. Yeah, um, anyway, it's great to have Renee for as long as we did. Um, maybe she'll pop back again. Maybe it's a battery issue. Uh, but I, I did want to get her to give a chance to promote her podcast with Caitlin Thompson. Uh, if okay. she returns, I'll certainly bring that up on the screen. Uh, yeah, Samsonova... Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe I don't get quite as excited about her as other people do. And certainly regarding Madrid, I haven't got her on my winner's radar anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, same. Um, 
I think um, it's I think outside of grass, it's difficult to have some sort of as a guaranteed um, winner. Um, she again hard to predict. So um, we'll see how that um, how that goes. Um, I think it should be. By fun. the way, I want to uh, promote your upcoming power. Oh, Renee's back. By the way, I'll bring uh -huh. her back in. Hi guys, sorry, I don't know what happened then. I just disappeared. Uh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, these things happen. This is the the world of the internet where we're trying to communicate um, across um, whole oceans. So um, don't worry about it. I mean, to be fair, we have kind of gone over the time that we agreed anyway. Um, and I know that you're very busy, um, obviously. Um, but uh, I have a little time. I have a little time. No, it's fine. You have a little time. Okay. Um, so I guess we had a question about your opinion on Ludmilla Samsonova. Yeah, I was just saying she's a bit of a box of chocolates. Um, yeah. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, she's either winning, uh, beating everybody, or she's getting crushed 0-0 or 2 in love. I mean, it's just crazy. Either the ball's going in or it's not. And I think she can be a threat in my Madrid, actually, because uh, her massive serve and big game sort of suits the style there a little bit more than just being a grinder. So, as I said, once she gets into the draw... Um, then she's very hard to beat, but she's a little bit, as I said, you just kind of don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, for her to lose the way she did in Stuttgart last week, I was like, what? Um, so, yeah. Which you find with a lot of big hitting players on the WTA tour is yeah, they are. Yeah, but love, like, what? I mean, so, you know, so that's where sometimes I look at the I look at the results, you know, if I don't get a chance to watch because it's either in the middle of the night or something, and I'm just like, how does that happen? So, yeah, so she's a bit confusing sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the most extreme example of that is Yelena Ostapenko, let's be honest. It's very similar, kind of big hitting, goes all out, but also you've got no idea what you're going to come up against. Uh, very true, very true. I, I think Samsonova has a little bit more margin, but uh, yeah, Ostapenko is that, you know, just the classic, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, look at her last week. She was just crushing ons and then found a way to lose. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Ostapenko is a very extreme example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, well, I think um, obviously you said you were. Oh, I'll tell you what, we're getting more questions from the chat at the minute. This is what happens when you got interactive with the audience. Um, Coco Goff, actually, you yeah. are far better place to comment on this because my knowledge of tennis technique is shocking. Um, so, what do you reckon about this question from Shunt, which has now disappeared off the screen? So yeah, I saw it. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, the extremity on her forehand is. A lot. Now, there are some players like Iga Shiontek that have very similar grips. They're very, very extreme. But Iga really goes after the forehand and really extends through it and nails it, whereas Coco guides it too much sometimes. So she has to either decide, am I going to really extend? And also, I, you know, I don't want to criticize her because I think she's such a terrific, first of all, one of the nicest kids you'll ever meet in your whole life, works her butt off. But I think she gets too stagnant with her feet as well. And if you watch Iga play, her feet never stop. They never stop. And so her feet not stopping causes her racket head in a lot of ways not to stop either. So there's that beautiful, you know, um, balance that Iga has where it's like bam, 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 bam. Whereas I think sometimes with Coco, it's like one big plodding step hit. And I think that's part of the problem is her footwork and um, and then that slows her racket head down. So she has to figure out a way, either am I going to hit the crap out of this forehand and really let it go like she does with the backhand is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Or am I going to play a defensive forehand 
and be a little bit more like a Halep or a Wozniacki that never made a mistake on the forehand, even though both of them have had much weaker forehands and that's where their breakdown would come. They just went to a place of I'm not going to miss and then I'm going to use my speed around the court to set up my backhand and I'm going to frustrate my opponent. So, you know, Coco can come into the net as well. So she has quite good sense of how to move forward, which is really important. Um, but there's that problem of when someone hits the ball hard and flat to her forehand, she gets a little bit too stagnant with the feet and then the racket head goes slow and then it causes her to miss a lot of forehand. So she has to decide, am I going to be very fast with the hands and quicker with the feet? And I'm going to beat the speed back with speed like Eager does? Or am I going to play defensively and use my... So there's that juxtapose position of the way she plays on the court. So, you know, that's something that her, her coaches have to work on. And I have my theories, but I'm not coaching her. <laughs> <laughs> Coco Goff's coaches get Renee Stubbs in as a consultant. <laughs> well, you know, that's actually something that I would like to do with someone like her because it's not... You don't have to tinker all that much because she has the spirit. She has the fighting qualities. Mm. Um, the second serve is also a bit of an issue for me. There's a couple of hitches there and also her grip on her serve to me frustrates me as well. But her tenacity to want to play and win and try and her backhand and her willingness to move forward. I like that she plays doubles. All of the things are all great. It's just that forehand is going to be a problem going forward for the rest of her career unless she figures out what she wants to do with it and how she wants to use it. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think the reason why she is top 10 in the world at 19 is that fighting spirit that she has. Yeah. Um, she's makes her very, very hard to beat um, mm -hmm. anyone by anyone yeah. outside the top 10. Yeah. Um, and, well, and her backhand and her speed and her volleys and her first serve are pretty damn good. <laughs> yes. That is, that also helps a lot. Yeah. Um, so, and look, you, she doesn't get to world number one in doubles for, for nothing. Um, right. so. Yeah. She's yeah. And she's still, and the fact she's so young means that she can work on this technique. Yeah. Um, so there is hope. There is definitely hope if you're a Coco Goff fan. Yeah, I mean, I'd be pretty um, thrilled with my career if I was her age, having achieved what she's achieved. But I do think Clay is probably one of her better surfaces because she does have time on the forehand to hit that high spinny one up the line and then set up the rest of her game. But there are things that she can certainly um, get better at and she will get better at um, through the next 10 to 15 years, which is how long she'll probably play for. Yeah. Um, I okay. hope so, because I, I, I definitely think we should... Um, enjoy more of Coco. Um, right. Well, before you go, I just want to ask, um, uh, I tell you, ask, ask you to tell us a bit more about your uh, podcast that you have with um, Caitlin Thompson and where we can hear a little bit more about your thoughts. Yeah, well, um, I appreciate the photo. It's actually under my name now, the Renee Stubbs Tennis Podcast. Um, okay. So you can find <laughs> it at any, um, any of your apps. Just type in the Renee Stubbs Tennis Podcast, two N's A-E, like my name. And, um, yeah, we just have a bit of fun. We, we get a little controversial sometimes because Caitlin and I are not shy in um, our thought process, <laughs> what we think about things. Um, sometimes we ruffle some feathers, but I think that's important in tennis because, you know, unfortunately you've been in the game a long time. You get sort of the same narrative and you also get the same thought processes. And I think we forget to look outside the box a little bit. And I think that with Racket Magazine, with what they do about bringing in sort of social things and also the art variables um and people that don't really consider themselves to be tennis people um but yet love tennis and we'd like to involve them in it but also just i don't know i think we have a different 
more critical thought process sometimes on the on the sport, but also nobody loves a sport like we do. So um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and I think it's good to have lots of different voices out there uh, in the tennis world. I was having um, a, a colleague on this channel uh, and I were talking, Damien, uh, when we were commentating across everything happening on ATP and WTA all on Super Saturday, if you want to call it that, with all the semi-finals going on at the same time. And we were chatting around um, all the tennis podcasts out there and how a lot of them say a lot of the same things. So um, it's yeah. definitely good to have some variety out there in the market. Yeah, well, the good thing for us is that obviously I played professionally for over 20 years, so I've, I have a very unique way of um, seeing the sport and um, loving the sport, seeing the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. Um, and Caitlin, coming from college uh, as a college tennis player, but also someone who's quite uh, intellect, um, very worldly, worked as a journalist for Time magazine and all kinds of things. She has a very different way of thinking about things, and I'm very much you know, in your face and very raw and sometimes that hurts me. But also it is like how I feel at the time. Like in the last couple of podcasts, we've been a bit upset at the WTA, how they've handled a few things. And, you know, these are people that I, I know and, and I've known for 20 plus years. And if I'm going to have, if I'm going to be critical, um, it's because I'm coming from a place of maybe being a little frustrated. But um, also at the same time, I want it to be better. And so that's why sometimes the criticism comes, but also we're very different thinkers. Um, and I think that's actually kind of important rather than just spewing the same boring narrative about tennis. It's a, it's a fun dynamic. So yeah, everyone watching, go check out um, that pod, the podcast and check out um, Renny presenting the Power Hour on Amazon Prime. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us um, so many fantastic thoughts about um, Stuttgart and Madrid and... Yeah and Sviantec um, and all and uh, coaching and uh, the psychology of tennis it's been absolutely fascinating conversation thank you so much yeah thanks for having me on and I uh, appreciate it and it's always good to have different voices in tennis so I appreciate yours oh fantastic thanks very much Renee um, okay, hopefully no we'll be problem. around for a bit all right Take I'm going to do my other production meeting of my show <laughs> so okay see you later, see you later. <laughs> okay bye I was very very kind of Renee to stick around for a little bit longer um, for us and we got um, yeah fantastic interview out of it so very very grateful to her so yeah don't forget to subscribe John is back from live from Madrid where he is going to be bringing us all the updates on the ground uh, on the ATP and the WTA WTA starts tomorrow ATP starts on Wednesday is that right John oh there's no sound there we go now we should have sound, right? Yeah, yeah, we've got you now. We've got you now. Yes, we've got qualifying yesterday and today. Sorry, today and tomorrow uh, on the WTA side. I think there is a couple of w WTA 120, the last one, well, the first round. There's a couple tomorrow. Yeah, there's some first rounds happening tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but I think ATP is the following day. But um, yeah. I'm all in a bit of a haze. I've just sort of come from Barcelona. I got the 7 o'clock train this morning and... And it's, um, yeah, uh, but let's, listen, Nick, before we bring this to a close, I want to mention that you're going to do a power rankings pretty much on a weekly basis between now and Madrid. We'll probably do that as a separate video and then just post it online like a five minute thing. Maybe your top 10 players. I think it's a must, really. Uh, we can probably all guess who will probably be at the top right now. But yeah. to be honest with you, the other 
two, three, four, five, six players that are the threats to her that we've just touched upon, uh, they could really be in any order. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guarantee to you that, um, viewers, that you're going to disagree with a lot of my rankings right now. And a lot of it is based on the fact we have so little data on clay right now because we've only really got Stuttgart, Charleston and Bogota from the main WTA tour. Um, so um, it's going to be, so there's going to be a lot of influence from last year's Roland Garros and past Roland Garros's. Um, so far, Madrid's where it's going to start looking a bit sane, more sane. But I, I'm looking forward to sharing my views with you all and getting a WTA power ranking out there because I, I know that not many other shows do it. Um, so I'm excited to uh, discuss what everyone thinks is going to happen ahead of the French Open. There's a gap in the, uh, what's it called, the market for, for WTA power rankings. Uh, listen, I will just add this as a closing statement. It's actually something I said to Jack earlier on on his podcast. Make sure you check out On The Line. I do think the narrative has changed in the last seven days with, with Eager's run in Stuttgart. I just think that a week ago, I would have posted, who's winning the French? And most people would probably go with Eager, but who knows? People may suggest Sabalika. Now, who's the biggest threat? Because because the narrative has shifted more in Eager's favour. It's it's now like Eager and who else? Not who, if you like. Exactly. Yes. And and for me, that was always kind of going to be the narrative. Um, but Maybe. I think it's solidified Maybe. it for sure. But now I think I think I think really a week ago, if somebody said that they were predicting Krejcikova, for Savalenka, even Rabakina for whatever reason, I'd be like, okay, yeah, fair enough. I still make Sviontek the favourite. That would be my response a week ago. Now, I think it's difficult to make a How can you make a case for Savalenka right now? I mean, she's number two, maybe on your power rankings, or number four or number six. But to, to just legitimately say, this is why Savalenka's winning, I think there's that's quite difficult to make that argument. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And um, I think before then, maybe you could have said, like, as Renee was saying earlier, like Barbara Kajikova um, is possibly like still the biggest threat right now. Could be. Uh, Could be. But we'll find out. We'll find out. Um, thanks for coming on and joining us the last few minutes, John. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing everything coming out of Madrid that you're going to produce and talking to all the play um, players uh, that you can. Um, looking forward to seeing that Lara Siegmund interview that you recorded. Yeah, exactly. That'll be uh, going on air in the next hour or two, depending on how quickly I can get that uh, edited and uploaded. But we had uh, we had a good 10 minute chat about learning German, about tapas um, and even a bit of tennis as well. Ah, uh, That's going to be so much fun to watch. So yeah. keep an eye on the channel. Make sure you subscribe so you can see that video um, and stay subscribed to see more Madrid coverage coming from John on the ground and any commentary that we might be doing over the next couple of weeks. For now, I'll sign off. Thank you all so much for watching. Take care. If you enjoyed this video, make sure you hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Sports Social Podcast Network.